following audio is from West Pines Community Church. For more information about West Pines, visit us online at westpines.org. You can join us live Sunday morning at 9.45 or 11.30 a.m. in Pembroke Pines, Florida, or online at westpines.org. The story we are looking at in Murder in the Garden is probably the most famous story in the world. It's most likely the most famous story, or at least one of them. It's the story of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, and they eat the forbidden fruit. Not the proverbial forbidden fruit, not the metaphoric forbidden fruit. They eat literally fruit that was forbidden, and they commit an incredible crime. It was the crime of all of history. It was the mother of all mistakes, the mother of all sins. And I, I told you last week, we talked about that our, your church, West Pines, actually came across actual footage of this ancient story, video footage. We have an archaeology ministry here, and they were searching for it. They're digging in Miami Lakes. They found this footage of Adam and Eve. Who knew? And so this morning, I would like to share with you episode two of Murder in the Garden. Last week on Murder in the Garden. Adam, I messed up. The forbidden fruit. Every last bit of it, I ate it until it was gone. We have to leave. Pack our bags and get out of here. So what did you do today in the garden, Adam? Well, I went for a walk. And then I rode on the back of an eagle. Oh, that bald one? That's nice. Did you order pizza, darling? Mm, mm-mm. Looks like the snake. Yeah, that's right. Make yourself at home, why don't you? What do you want, snake? I have a proposition for you. That sound never gets old. What if I told you that uh, I had something tasty for you to eat? So, the pizza's in the car? <laughs> I got something better than pizza. There's nothing better than pizza. But what if I told you there was? Sounds fishy. Come on, Adam. You can trust me. Do I look like the kind of guy who would double-cross you? You're going to have a hard time convincing me that there's something better than pizza. Just give him a chance, Adam. Yeah, the dame's got a good head on her shoulders, Adam. You should listen to her. What I got here is a piece of fruit. Did you say pizza fruit? Forget about the pizza, will you? This fruit will make you faster. Mm Mm-hmm. Stronger. Mm Mm-hmm. Smarter. Mm Mm-hmm. Thinner. This is one deal you don't want to pass. Oh, okay, that came in too early. This is one deal. Okay, now this is getting old. Tune in next time for another episode of Murder in the Garden. We don't really know whether to clap after that. You're like, that was just so absurd. I, I guess we'll clap. That's, that's special. Anyway, 
We're going to look at a different version of that this morning, um, found in your Bible. Uh, The story that we're going to look at, we're going to go back to the beginning, and it's where the serpent, the snake, tempts Adam and Eve into making this decision. Now, the heading in your Bible may say something like, the fall, or the fall of man. And this is actually, this story is actually considered the mistake that took down, it's called the fall of man, it's the mistake that took down all of humanity. It's, I mean, it's a monstrous mistake. There's few mistakes that happen in history that you can say that mistake affected every single human being that ever lived. But this is actually that mistake. We could consider this this act of rebellion against God, you could consider it the mother of all sins. And not just simply because of the scope of this mess up, but it's the mother of all sins partly because from this sin, every other mistake, every other act of rebellion, every other failure, every other sin happened from this sin. So within this sin, here's what that means. You have the DNA of every other sin. So if we look at this sin and we see, okay, what were the assumptions they made? What were the bad patterns that they got in? What were some of the the ways that they were thinking? And we can look at, can pick apart the DNA of this original sin. And we can then see the patterns, the assumptions, the, the patterns of thought that they were thinking. We can see that in the same patterns that we have that lead us into these mistakes. You know, every single one of us, we we just want to do this life right. You know, there's things that we care so much about. We don't want to have any regrets at the end. When it comes to relationships, we want to do our friendships right. We want to, we want our, don't want to make mistakes in our marriage with our kids. We don't want to make mistakes. We just want to do it right with our career and our jobs. We want to end our life not having any regrets. We want to avoid these major traps. And so what we're doing is going back to this sin, this moment when Adam and Eve rebelled against God and looking at those patterns to see where they show up in our lives so we can avoid the same trap. Let's look at Genesis chapter 3. We're going to look at verse 1. This is a mystery story. It's a murder mystery. And we, we open up on the scene and it gives us a little bit of an explanation of who this, the main villain, the snake, is. So let's look what it says. This is Genesis 3 verse 1. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now let's put the pause for a second on this mystery story. Let's just hit the pause button and let's just talk about this introductory verse. It opens up by saying the serpent, the villain, the enemy, the devil. We think what's happening here is the actual, the enemy, the devil, is actually using the snake to tempt Eve. And so this is the enemy. And it says, it's the most crafty of all the creatures that God had made. Now we want to take that verse really seriously. Because sometimes what we do when we're reading, especially this, this story, we read right through it and we just kind of look at Adam and Eve like, man, I can't believe they just made such a bad decision. I mean, how hard is it? Just don't eat the apple. Don't eat that forbidden fruit. Just, it's not that difficult. There's a fruit on the tree. God says don't eat it. I mean, it's kind of like he gave them one thing not to do. 
And they had to do it. I mean, how hard is it? We read this story and we don't take this first verse very seriously. It's saying the tactics that this snake used, the tactics the enemy used were extremely crafty. So what should happen is we should read that and it should cue us. You know what? Let me watch the tactics of the snake because if it's so crafty that the Bible's saying, this is, I mean, this is a trap that was laid. If we want to take that seriously so we can see the way that he begins to talk to Eve and drew her in is often the same things that draw us in. So we want to take that seriously. And I want you to notice the first thing that he says. He says, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? This is his opening to this whole trick to lure her in. Did God say you can't eat of any tree in the garden? Now think about this phrase for a second. It's absurd. I mean, she she and Adam, Adam and Eve, are placed in this garden. What they have for food is in the garden. It's the trees. We believe from what we put together in Genesis, they are uh, vegetarians. They're eating from what's in the garden. This is where they live. This is not just their backyard. Okay, this is where they live. This is where they work. They're in the garden. The only thing they have to eat are the things from the trees in the garden. So this is a really absurd thing that the snake says. He, he doesn't start with something, it doesn't sound too tricky, but it lures her into the conversation. He says, man, you guys don't have anything to eat around here? I guess God said you can't eat of any of the trees in this gigantic garden. Man, that's, that's terrible. And, and Eve's kind of caught off guard. She's like, well, she's going to respond. She's going to say, well, we can. But he starts with this big phrase. Now, here's the thing. He's already working an angle. He's already starting to talk to Eve. He's already start, He's got an angle he's going to go on. It starts really crazy, but it draws her in, and he's going to work this angle. He's wanting to get her to start thinking. Man, God is so restrictive. He doesn't want you to have any fun. He doesn't care about you. He, if you follow God's ways, man, it's just, there's no liveliness to that kind of life. You know, you, you just have this kind of restricted, kind of muted, kind of claustrophobic. I mean, God's just all about it. He's a killjoy. He's so restrictive. He's already starting to work that angle. And as we see, as we work through this serpent's tactics, we'll see him develop that more and more. We're actually going to talk about that next week. This is pro- that particular lie the angle we already see him starting to work is probably the lie that we in our culture, and maybe especially in South Florida, that may be the lie we swallow the, the most. You don't want to miss next week when we go into this. The serpent is very crafty. He's already drawing her in. He's saying, man, God said you can't eat anything around here, this whole garden, and you can't eat any of the trees? That's terrible. Now look how Eve responds. This is verse 2. It says this, And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Now look up here at these screens. I, there's an underlying part. I want you to read this out loud with me. Read it with me. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. So here's what happens. The uh, serpent says something probably Eve wasn't expecting. And and by the way, all that happens in this conversation, Adam is standing right next to her. A little bit later, the frame zooms out and you realize Adam was there the whole time. 
So Adam doesn't correct her at any point in time during this conversation. So what Eve is saying, we can assume, is what both Adam and Eve believe. So Serpent says, you can't eat of any of the trees, man. That's terrible. I don't know what you guys eat around here. You must be starving. And she says, no, 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 we can eat of the trees in the garden. And then she goes, to, she goes on to give her rendition, or probably their rendition, of what God commanded. Now, how close did Eve get to what God said? I mean, as she kind of regurgitates out, this is what God told us about what tree we're not supposed to eat from. How close did she get? She said, oh, we can eat of, we can eat of the trees of the fruit in the garden. It's just that, that tree in the middle of the garden, we're not supposed to eat that, and we can't touch it or we'll die. Okay, how close did Eve get? Let's just kind of go backwards a little bit. I want you to go back with me to Genesis chapter 2. We're just going to go back a couple verses, and let's look at when God originally commanded it, and let's see what, what God actually said. Look at verse 16. It's going to be up here on the screens as well. It said, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Now watch this. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat it. Shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Okay, that sounds pretty close. I mean, Eve gave the general gist of what God said. I mean, she, she got it, you know. Yeah, you, you can eat of, of trees in the garden. And it's that tree in the middle of the garden you can't eat of and, and don't even touch it or you'll die. Well, okay, the first thing we notice when we compare what God said versus what Eve said, which is what uh, both Eve and Adam probably believe. The first thing we notice is that, okay, it was close, but Eve added something to it, didn't she? God said, don't eat of the tree or in that day you will die. Well, Eve said, we can't eat of the tree or touch it or we'll die. All right, so she added a little bit to what God said. That's not so bad. They're just trying to be a little overcautious. All right, they just want to make sure they don't accidentally, you know, they're climbing the tree one day. One of them falls down. Their mouth is open. The fruit falls in their mouth. I was just trying to be really careful. They don't want an accident to happen. Don't even touch the tree. All right, well, that kind of prompts us. Let's look a little deeper. Okay, so she added something. Let's see, did, did she get it all right? Well, you know what? It's interesting. When you look at the first thing she said, um, she, she actually not just added something, she took out something. It's not just, she added, don't touch it. But God said, the day you eat of it, he says, that day you will surely die. Well, that's not exactly what Eve said. She said, don't eat of it, don't touch it, or we'll die. But God said, the day you eat of it, you will surely die. Not only is God more emphatic about the consequence, he's very specific that it will be that day. So she added something to it, and she took something out of it. Okay, well, let's keep digging. How close was Adam and Eve's perspective of what God said? Well, there's something else that she actually took out. When she said, um, you can eat of the trees in the garden, actually what God specifically said is you can eat of, surely eat of every tree in the garden. Well, Eve really wasn't that emphatic. She didn't represent that emphasis from God. She said, no, we can eat of the trees in the garden. She's really, what she's doing is she's underemphasizing the freedom they have. 
God is telling him, look, there's this place is loaded with incredible things that you can eat. You will have no wants or desire. In here, it's got everything you want. It's, it says that this, this garden is filled with all the lush trees that are good to eat. He says, you can surely eat of all of them. That's not exactly how Eve put it. She lessens the freedom that God says, and she says, no, we can eat. There's stuff to eat around here. But there's something else. Did you notice how she specified the, which tree she should, they should not eat from? It's a little more fuzzy. See, God said it's the tree. There's one tree. Okay, you got this? It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It has a name. That one tree you're not supposed to eat of. But that's not exactly how Eve put it. She said, oh, it's that tree in the middle. There's a tree somewhere in the midst of the garden. It's somewhere in the middle, and yeah, it's one of those that we're not supposed to eat or and really shouldn't even touch it, I guess, you know, or, or we'll die or something. In fact, one translation of the Hebrew it, it could even be translated something like, if we eat of it or touch it, we might die. We could die. There could be death. You see, when you actually, when we dig into it, we see that Eve, a couple things, she's added to what God said. She added an extra law that God didn't say. And it's not just she added it like it was a boundary, like, hey, you know, we're not supposed to eat of it, snake, but just to be careful, we're, we're also not going to touch it. That, hey, maybe that's a wise boundary, but that's not what she said. She said, God told us, if we eat it, it's a sin. If we touch it, it's a sin. Can't, don't look at it. I mean, she's adding to it. Okay, she's not only adding to what God said, she removed from what God said. She lessened the emphasis on the consequences of sin. And she lessened the emphasis on the freedom they have and what God's allowed them to do. Now, there's so much in there, and we're going to take some more time in the next couple of weeks and pick, pick that apart because there's so much in there. But for this morning, the most important thing to see is that Adam and Eve, they were a little fuzzy on what God said. They had the gist of it. And the gist of it is not good enough. They had the general idea of what God said. I kind of know, but that's not close enough. Missing some critical details, man, is what makes them at this point in the conversation with the snake, he's already got them. In fact, you could even say maybe their mistake happened long before this encounter with the serpent. It happened when they decided to not really truly know what God had said. Little details, just like, okay, but they're off just a little. Is that really that big of a deal? Man, missing a little piece of, of what is said can make a massive difference. When I was in, in college, um, at the time I was uh, dating the woman who's now my wife. I was dating Rebecca at the time, and I decided to take her out for her birthday. Okay, I mean, it was going to be really nice. So I took her to Olive Garden. <laughs> and... While we're at this five-star dining location, we're there, and it's her birthday. It's on the day, you know, I'm her boyfriend, so I'm just trying to, you know, have it all together and really impress her. And while we're sitting there talking, there was uh, the servers come in, and at the table, just a little ways away, they did the whole thing where they clap, and they sing for the person's birthday, and they deliver this chocolate cake. And Rebecca looks at me, and she was just watching it was making her embarrassed. She's like, oh gosh, I hate when they do that. That is, that is the worst. 
And I looked at her, I'm like, yeah, but look at the chocolate cake that you get. I'm kind of like, could you just take one for the team here? We could get a chocolate cake out of this mix. And she says, no, no, that is, I cannot do that. That is, that is the most humiliating thing. It would ruin my night. I, I just, I can't do it. Rebecca, she doesn't, the type of person, she doesn't like all the fuss about her. She's like, I, I just don't want that kind of thing. And I'm like, all right, all right, all right, here's what we'll do. Why don't you just leave the table and like pretend you're going to use the restroom or something and I, when the server comes by, I'll explain that it's your birthday. We would like the cake. We do not want the clapping. We don't want the singing, Okay. Why don't you just do it? She's like, all right, all right. If you think you do it, I'm like, trust me, I got this covered. So she leaves the table for a few minutes, and um, the server's just not coming by. And I'm waiting for the server. I'm waiting for the server. And finally, I see Rebecca coming around the corner, and, and I'm like, I go like this, and just then the server appears. So I have this whole spiel that I have to condense. I said, it's my girlfriend's birthday today. We want the cake, but the singing would really embarrass her. And Rebecca sits down, and the server leaves, and I'm like, all right, we got it. And she's like, did you do it? I'm like, yes, I got it all covered. A few minutes later, we hear it. (laughs) Emerging from the kitchen is some clapping. It's not four or five servers. Every employee that works in Olive Garden in the county showed up, okay? (laughs) my mind, it's like 75 people. The restaurant's like a conga line, okay, around them, all right? They're clapping. I've never seen so many servers coming around, and they get up to, at this point, she is, like, there's lasers that are singeing my face. She's like, what have you done? And at this point, they come up to the table, and you see the server had misunderstood. And I, I understand this now. She says to Rebecca, we want to really embarrass you tonight, so go ahead and stand on up. At this point, Rebecca is purple. Okay, she's mouthing, I hate you. Okay, to me as I'm sitting there, and there's only one thing for me to do at this point. Join right in with them. Okay, just, what can you do at this point? It's over, okay? Just join in. See, little tiny detail got wrong in there somehow, all right? It didn't matter how I explained. I'm surprised I wasn't wearing that cake a little bit later, okay? A little tiny detail got, can get messed up, can mess up a whole situation. Okay, here's what's happening with Adam and Eve. The, we, we can see that in our own lives that just a tiny little detail gets off, a word, a misunderstanding. I mean, think of all the misunderstandings that can just cause all kinds of problems just in our lives, We're talking about the words of God. Probably a good idea for them to know precisely, exactly what he said, what he meant, pour over them, let it saturate their minds, repeat it, know it inside and out. But obviously they're a little fuzzy on it. So here's what happens. Verse 4, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. I want you to see what happens. This is so important. I want you to see that she she didn't, and and really it's Adam and Eve, but 
we're, we talk about Eve in the beginning here, but we realize Adam's a part of all of it. But here's what's happening. The serpent's talking to her, and I want you to see that her thinking changes. She's not just saying, I know I shouldn't eat it, I know I shouldn't eat it, I know I shouldn't eat it, I know what God said, and I know I shouldn't eat it, but eh, it just looks tempting, and she eats it. That's not what happens. Her thinking changes. The serpent is so crafty, he doesn't just say, go ahead and eat of it. I know it's wrong, I know God doesn't want you to do it, but just go ahead, go ahead. It'll be good, it'll be good. You know, just, just, it's worth it. That's not what happens. And that's almost never how our big mistakes happen. Almost never. Now, sometimes it's like this, but usually it's not, I really know that this is going to completely destroy my life, but I just can't resist it. That's almost never how it happens. Our thinking changes about it. I mean, it's not really that bad. I mean, is that really, I mean, let's not split hairs. What, I, I kind of know what God meant, and I, I don't think what I'm doing is wrong. Well, I mean, why would God put this right in front of me if he doesn't want me to do this? Or why would God make me like this if this is not what he wants? Or, or man, I, you know what, with all that I've done and how hard I've tried, I deserve this. Or you just kind of rethink about it. You know, I, I just... You know, maybe I've just been too literal or maybe too rigid or too strict. I just don't think that's that bad. Or maybe it's, you know, God and I have this understanding. See, it's our thinking changes about it. And this is the scariest part of sin. Is it feels and looks like it's right. That's the scariest part is I can be completely deceived into thinking it's right. In fact, it's scarier. I can spend literally all of my life with a gigantic blind spot of sin that, I, that I've convinced myself is okay, or I was taught was okay. We can spend our life completely blind and unaware to massive strains of sin in our life, huge blind spots. That maybe we, that we were completely fooled our entire lives. We may be otherwise a godly-looking person. We may read the Bible. We may serve a church. We may be a, seem like a good person and have these massive blind spots our entire life. Now, wait a minute. I don't know about that, man. I, I'm not even sure how I feel about that theologically. You're saying a godly person who knows Jesus has the Holy Spirit, God dwelling inside of him. God is at work inside of him. You're saying a godly person may have just massive sin in their life constantly that they don't realize? Yes. Look at what the Bible says. Let's, let's go back. I want to go back to a passage in the early Old Testament. I want to just track their, their, the story in the Bible. Moses brings his people. They, they leave Egypt. They're in slavery. And Moses brings them out. They get the Ten Commandments. They get all of God's laws and commands. And then they're wandering through the wilderness. Remember this, they're wandering through the wilderness, they met at Mount Sinai, and then God's bringing them to the promised land. And they're at the promised land, and they raise up a new godly leader, Joshua. And this is what it was said to Joshua. Okay, look at this. This is Joshua 1.7. It's going to be on your screens. Let me just read this to you. This is what God says to Joshua. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left hand. 
that you may have good success wherever you go. Listen, the book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. See, here's what they say. Okay, they're going into the promised land. They rise up a new leader and God says to Joshua, Joshua, this is going to take a lot of strength. It's going to take a lot of boldness, but you've got to stand on the razor's edge of what God commands. You can't add a little bit to it. You can't take a little bit away. You've got to stand on it and you've got to, it's got to be saturated in you. You've got to speak it every, all the time. You've got to hold my people to this line because if they don't, if they go to the right or the left, it's disaster. He's saying, so things like this, I told you how to worship, I told you about the sacrifices, you've got to continue doing those things. You know, I told you about the commandments, about not having any idols, not worshiping any other gods. So I told you, in fact, make sure that you don't, your kids don't marry people of pagan faiths, of other faiths, so that you've got a divided house on who's worship, who you're worshiping. He says, and he says, remember all the festivals I told you, the feasts? He says, I want you to keep the feast. One feast in particular was known as the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles or Huts. And basically they're like, okay, you're coming. You've been wandering around the wilderness. You're coming into the promised land. You're going to have your own cities, your own houses. But once a year, I want every person in Israel, to, to every family to build a hut and camp in it outside their house because I want you to remember that there was a time when you didn't have cities and you didn't have houses, but you were in the wilderness wandering around and you had one, one person guiding you. It was me. And every year I want you to camp out as families and get inside those huts and teach your children, man, we can trust God. God will guide us through. There was a time when all this whole nation of Israel, before we had cities and houses, where God was guiding us through. He says, Joshua, stand on that line. Don't go to the right or to the left. Well, if you know the story, you know what happened? It's a downward spiral after Joshua. It says it gets to the point you go through the book of Judges and it just gets worse and worse and worse and worse. They start worshiping other gods. They've got idols everywhere. They're, they, they're, it's just being, their worship of God is being watered down and watered down and finally it gets to the end of Judges and it literally says something like this. Everyone was just doing whatever they wanted. No one was following God. And you look back at what happened with Joshua. How did it get here? And so God raises up a leader. He says, a godly leader. He raises up David, a couple kings. And you've got David. And he says, he's a man after my own heart. And David brings them back to worshiping God. He writes so much of the Psalms. And he's got this incredible vision of who God is. And he brings them back to worship of God. But even David had some massive blind spots in his life, didn't he? He has an affair with a woman named Bathsheba and the... Entire country is nearly divided over it. There's incredible destruction. But you know what he says to his son Solomon? Solomon comes along and on his deathbed, you know what he says to Solomon? He says, Solomon, show yourself a man and make sure you follow God's commands and laws and words down to the letter. So you're like, okay, we've got this great hero in Solomon and Solomon, God says, to Solomon, I'll give you whatever you want. Solomon prays for wisdom and you're reading it like, wow, what an insight. And God says, I'm going to give you wisdom. And then through that wisdom, he gives him almost anything else. He's one of the most wealthy, powerful men in history. People are coming from all over the world to see Solomon. You just hear how incredible he was. But even as, in the midst of his incredible wisdom, he had a massive blind spot, didn't he? He had over a thousand wives. And most of them were from other faiths. 
So you have this incredible man named Solomon. He wrote books of the Bible that are still so true today, and yet he starts building temples in Jerusalem for his wives to worship. And he goes to those temples. Well, what do you think happens? His kids now, they, they raise up, the, the country gets divided, and it gets worse and worse. Israel, Israel and now Judah, two countries, their, their, their worship of God is getting farther and farther away. The, kids, the kings are getting wick, more wicked and more wicked. They're actually now not just bringing these temples, they're bringing idols into God's temple. And then they make this thing called the high places. They make these shrines to God up on the tops of, shrines to other gods up on the top of these mountains. And they would go to these high places and the way they would worship these pagan gods is they would, they would hook up with a prostitute. And this was happening among God's people. The hope for the world. In fact, it got so bad that some of the kings got, in Israel and Judah got so wrapped up in these pagan gods that they were sacrificing their children. Human sacrifice. And you're reading this and your heart's breaking. Man, they didn't stay uh, on the law. Look at these just massive sins that are happening. And then he would raise up a king and you've got Hezekiah. And you're like, okay, wow, this king, he gets all the idols out of the temple and he, he turns the people back to God. And you're like cheering and you get to the end of the chapter. And he says, yeah, this godly man, but he had a massive blind spot. He didn't even address the high places. He just left them up. Man, you're like that's the best king that's come in generations. And then you read a little longer and you get to a king named Josiah and it says he comes along and, and, and when he gets to Josiah, he's this young king and he has an advisor that comes to him and says, hey, we found this book in the temple. He says, oh yeah, what kind of book? He says, I don't know. <sighs> Dust it off. He says, it's called the law. What is that? And they open it up and, he, and they read it and he's shocked He's devastated and he calls all of Israel back to God. And you're like, wow, what an awesome king. He pulls all of the idols out of the temple. And he, he, tear, he actually, for the first time in generations, he tears down the high places. He turns everyone back to God. And you know what happens in the next generation? They put it all back up. And God takes them and puts them in, in exile. They're in, they're in um, various empires. And finally, a Persian king starts to send them back. And a couple godly leaders, one named Ezra and one named Nehemiah, they go back to, to Jerusalem. They find it in just shambles. It's just rubble, a conquered wasteland. And Ezra leads the people to rebuild the temple. And God uses Nehemiah to rebuild the walls so people can inhabit Jerusalem. And they read the law. And you know what it says in the law? What it says in Nehemiah? It says, and they read in it about a festival of booths which Israel had not done since the days of Joshua. All those godly leaders missed it. David, Solomon, Hezekiah, Josiah missed it. I mean, we look in our lives and... Here's the deadliness of sin and the incredible patience and grace of God. Is that sin looks right and it feels right and it's so easy for us to slip in this slipstream of our culture and just to, just to have massive streaks of sin in our life that we don't even realize. Look at our, the history of our country. Founded on biblical truths. And look at the massive blind spots that we have had in our country's history. And here's the thing that haunts me. 
what might our descendants say about us? What might they say about the massive blind spots? This is the deceit, how deceiving sin is. Is we can, just, we can be seeking the Lord and just not stand razor sharp on His Word, not let it wash over, sink into our lives, not be unmovable on God's Word, and we might have massive blind spots that our kids just shake their head at. What haunts me is I wonder what that might be. I can't help but wonder... As we look at our culture, it's hard not to wonder where the culture that has more access to the truth of God than any other generation in the history of the world. And I'm not just saying that because you have about 25 versions of the Bible on your phone that you can read at any time of your day. In fact, you can have it read to you. I'm not just saying that because you have instantaneous access to tens of thousands of books that are teaching the Bible that you could instantly download and read or read to, have read to you. I'm not saying that because there are thousands and thousands of rich biblically-based sermons that you can download and listen to at any point in time in your day while you're doing a house project on your commute, while you're waiting for a meeting. I'm not just saying that because you have that. I'm saying that because we can read. We're one of the first generations in the history of Christianity where almost all of us can read. Every other generation, they would have to wait for someone to teach them what the Bible said. Maybe there's one person in their village if they're lucky. I wonder, what's a little bit haunting is where they have the most access to the truth in history. We're the most resourced generation in history. We talk about, you know, the nuances of the economy fluctuating. And in the span of the rest of the world and history, we have access to more resources than any other generation and probably any other place in the world. More resourced than any time in history. And we have more awareness to what is happening in the world than any generation in history. We know what's happening in the world and we can get there And I heard a statistic earlier this week. It was in our country, statistically, when it comes to religion, the percentage of people, when they look through the religions and they check none, doubles in our country every 10 years. And here's what's haunting. With all that we have access to, one day we'll stand before God. And praise the Lord that all of our sins are on Jesus. But at the same point, will we stand before God and say we had more access to the truth, to the resources, and to an awareness of what was happening throughout the world. And we didn't do much about it. And when we stand next to our Savior who bore our sins on his shoulders, the one who said, here's what it looks like to follow me. He looked at his followers. The original word is mathetes. And he says, here's what it looks like to be my mathetes. It's the original Greek word. Here's what it means to be my mathetes. You renounce all that you have to follow me. 
You take up your cross and follow me. That means it's following me, our Savior says, is all or nothing. One of the most profound verses in the entire New Testament says this, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind and then you'll be able to test and approve what God's perfect will is. Do you realize we don't, the danger of that deceit constantly pumped into our brains? It is so imperative that we as individuals, as families, and together as a church, we come together, we link arms and say, we've got to stand on the razor's edge of God's word. Eternity depends on it. I can't just treat it as, yeah, I got the gist of it. I've got to know it. It's got to saturate me. I've got to get it into my mind. I've got to get it into my kids. Or one day will we stand before God and will we be mortified at what we thought was important until that moment? The things that we were stressed all week about and then we get there and we're facing eternity and we're like, you know, did I really focus on the things that mattered a billion years from now? That God placed me on this planet with a mission. We together are called to be a light to this world. That is our purpose. That's why we are here. Are we leveraging everything we've got to follow after Jesus, saturating ourselves in his word together? You say, how do I do that? it's, It's simple, but it's dramatic. Maybe it's getting a resource like the Jesus Storybook Bible and going through it with your kids. Maybe it's you saying, I've got to get in the Word more personally. Maybe you go online and you download the series we did a couple months back, How to Read the Bible for Dummies, and you just go through it and say, I've got to teach myself. I've got to get into this. I've got more access than anyone in history. But it's more, even more dramatic than that. I don't know how else to say it other than this. You have got to be a part of a body of Christ, of a church that's saying, together we are standing together on God's Word it's not an, a church is not an event you attend. It's something that you are. It's a matter of getting involved, getting part of it. It's a matter of being here, bringing your family here to constantly renew your mind of where we're supposed to be because we get so often pulled out and conformed to the patterns of this world. But it's like, no, this is, I'm a part of this body. It's who I am. I'm part of the church. You've got to find a church that's saying, you know what, we're drawing the line in the sand. Jesus told us to be mathetes, to be followers of him, all or nothing, and that's what we're going to do. And you've got to link arms and say, I'm in. I'm part of that family. I'm part of that community something we've got to saturate ourselves in or we're going to miss it, the ultimate calling that Jesus has called us to. Don't get conformed with, does my life look exactly like all those people that live around me or am I following after Jesus with all that I've got? And why would I do that? Why would I give up everything to follow after Jesus? Because he gave up everything for the, to save your soul. He came to earth, God in the flesh came to earth, suffered on a cross and died. Why? He was dying the death we should have died. Took all of our sin and washed it away for eternity. Rose again from the dead saying it's finished. So that means no matter what, when, if we have accepted Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf, one day when we stand before God, regardless of all the things that we've done, he'll look and say not guilty because Jesus 
took your penalty. That's the joy of following after Jesus. And that's what motivates us to give everything we've got. Are you here this morning and you say, Jesus' death and resurrection, I I believe it. I want to be declared not guilty permanently by God. It's simple. All you do is just accept what Jesus did on your behalf. I want to lead you in a prayer. If that's you, I want to lead you in a prayer where you can accept that truth. Would you all just bow your heads and close your eyes? You say this morning, I believe that Jesus died for, died for me and rose again. I want to accept that truth this morning. Then just pray this prayer right there between you and God. God, thank you for saving me through Jesus. I know it's not about me trying to be good. I know it's about what Jesus did on my behalf. Thank you for declaring me permanently not guilty. I pray that you would give me the strength to follow after you. I give you my life. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at westpines.org. If you would like to speak with somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, please call at 954-432-0321. Or you can email us at podcast at westpines.org.